Indian summer. The touch of grated daikon on the tongue, smooth warmth against the taste buds, coolness of vegetable. You take a sip of your drink, pull an ice cube into your mouth, hold it, kiss me. Stone by Elise Kazanjan. I walk in the monastery garden. The ground is cloaked in autumn leaves of umber, red, and yellow in manicured groupings, offerings that lead to the chapel. A sky-gray-colored stone with stripes of California jade, smooth, rounded like our planet, sits on one of the small mounds gathered by the speechless monks. Who would have thought a stone of such unbending hardness could be a guide to this place where I am witness to my heartbeat thrumming through the air? Like the stone, there are no sharp edges to this silence, cleansing and washing all sounds that wrap this perfect small universe. I can see the Pacific Ocean beneath the cliffs. Waves ferociously attack the coastline, churning up froth. No sound travels up. The absence of noise gently laps over me. It graces my soul, embraces me, welcomes me, and gives me refuge. 50 plus 4 The first birthday I can recall was 50 years ago today. It's my first memory. I was four. I remember the game Kerplunk and a cake of rainbow jello that jiggled and swayed. But I was finally four. And that meant I was a man, because I received a real fishing rod, hand-wound, with a top-quality DAM quick reel. My father didn't buy kiddie tackle, crappy push-button zebcos, and stubby molded plastic rods. No, I was old enough for a real reel and a fine rod, and I knew that I had to take care of it, to be responsible, because now I was a man. That summer, I caught a 13-inch pickerel on a yellow worm. We nailed the head to a tree to dry and preserve it. It stank and writhed with maggots, and 40 years later, my dog ate it. I still have my pole, though eventually the tip broke when I was much older and less responsible, and the reel wore out from overuse. But the rod has lasted, though my father is gone. I am still a man, and so is my son. Paonia. I walk out the door, and the peonies remind me that you're not here. You loved how they would burst forth slow-motion fireworks right around your birthday. An empty day now, without celebrations, only memories of celebrations past. Yet I find myself struggling to remember those past birthdays, surely full of fishing and laughter, and probably lobsters and gin and love. The peonies are huge and pink, their petals brimming with the morning rain, like eyes full of tears. A watched kettle. First, the silent wait. Then a soft purring inside as new heat seeps the metal element. Each slow stutter crescendos the last insists with the unrelated rasp of a kitten delighted in her instigation of liquid turmoil. Through the narrow plastic window, I watch the agitation. Molecules hurled outwards, inwards, upwards, frenzied till their body-hot steam shocks the cool kitchen air 
and the plastic window mists in a perfect storm. Self-portrait is border. Some rivers shift course, but I stand firm, a nexus of rejection, that line denoting separation of north and good, evil and south, dark and white, welcoming no one. I stand guard, opposing all with my flag of diminishment. Squint, and you still can't see me. Your bare feet won't stir my dust. I am nowhere, but remain here. That feeling of prideful despair, strong, resolute, inflexible foe to all who dare cross. Ghost Story 1. In the vault of the water, bones have patience we can only imagine. The tops of ossified bison teeth are zigs of bone you will only see if you are lucky. They hide. You must understand this to learn the art of their finding. These teeth, big as palms, know the texture of small lives no longer here. One or two will crop up on the river small miracles of time, and will wait until you pass them, looking down at just the right moment, pockets empty, eyes downward in hope. 2. Bones are mazes of hollows, small clearings where old movements lie dormant. Can you hear them? In my grandmother's hospital room. The winter her citrus trees finally fruited, we were not allowed to turn them into juice. We could not consume them properly that way. We had to taste it all, the pith, the oils. I bit the rind because she told me to. She has always believed that with suffering comes peace, and the bitter skin was just that for her, a cleansing. It was the first time I ever noticed the pores of an orange, how they feel like worry on your tongue. God comes to us in many forms. The title is a quotation from Guanyin, the Chinese transformation of Alakatsfara by Chun Fang Yu. This is a poem by David Sullivan from my book Seed, Shell, Ash forthcoming from Salmon Press. This unfinished Shitan temple, speckled with a slow rolling drum of rain, slick with new red lacquer, emitting the deep grain smell of risony varnish, full of a cadre of workers. Some hand odds beams, others pull rope tightened saws through planks, while with much gesturing and discussion, another group pieces together Guanyin's statue in the main hall, where all her body parts are spread out. Six-foot head, a hollow cavity, sanded butterfly joints that marry wood to wood, still exposed. I can't be the only one who wants this to be Buddhism. Prayers to be the workers' playful jibes and banter, offerings to be fragrant wood shavings and cigarette smoke in the cool, wet air. Roadside Wonder by Julene Tripweaver 
There are no sea lions in the cave today. Tipped off, we save $16. Why go into a smelly pit to see three sea lions when there could be dozens? We are logical. It is a tourist trap, an all-American roadside attraction. I'd love to stand online to get a ticket with the screaming, crying, fussing children pulling their parents toward the gift shop. Go down the elevator. Pay my eight dollars. Isn't this what people do on summer vacation? Some scuba dive, rock climb, go hot air ballooning, or climb peaks all over the world. But the average Joe takes his kids on a drive away, get out of the house, but not too far. On the road, exceptions are made. A more expensive meal, an extra ice cream cone. Indulge in the movement, in different scenery, and the realization our days are getting shorter. This may be the last time we travel this route. Dinner Time by Melanie Arrowwood Wilcox I'm hungry. It's hurting their morale. The pans are iron, blackened by the weight of 75 years of breakfast and dinners, meals prepared by more than one woman's hands, while children and husbands hovered nearby. Can I fly outside? And it's just one more thing I have to handle. A spoonful of soft margarine plops onto hot iron, sliding towards the edge of the pan. Bubbles form in the ghee, bursting in tiny explosions as the heat intensifies. Mom, can I go outside? The child's eyes revealed doubt that the plea was heard. A nod of assent, and the screen door slammed shut behind him. Time is always urgent to the young who have experienced so little of it. She thinks of the moths fluttering around the porch light each night, lulled by warmth and light, until they settle against the wall, introspective and endangered. Can you believe she said that? I mean, I've been spending five years working on this project. Cold, bloody meat falls heavily into the melted margarine, splashing grease onto the white enamel stovetop. She reaches across the pan carefully, finds the correct bottle of seasoning, and pours a small amount into her palm. When I said I could, she rubs the spice with her thumb, grinding it into a fine powder before sprinkling it over the flesh in the pan. At the sink, she runs water, too hot to touch, over the steel spatula. Washing the implements several times as she prepares the family meal, she tries to forget the microscopic things that fester in living tissue, especially once it dies, things that creep unknown into the stomachs and bowels and cause illness, or worse. So there's a meeting tomorrow afternoon to discuss how to handle the problem. Now she slices onions and peppers into thin strips, a whole cup of sweetness that she spreads over the meat as it grumbles in the pan, bleeding tote puddles from its sides. As the aroma of onions drifts into the room, she pours dusty white rice into a clear glass bowl, takes it to the steel sink, and runs water enough to drown the naked grains. Is my jacket back from the cleaner? The bowl chinks hard against the revolving glass plate in the microwave. Did it break? Fingers trace the circle of the rim, probe gently around the bottom. No, it's safe. I'm hungry. Is it ready yet? 
The child's face is returned to the screen door, remembering what had been on his mind before the irresistible urge to flee had struck him. She ignores the flightiness, ignores his question for the moment. It's not in the closet, are you sure? Three plates, three glasses, three forks, three knives, no spoons, napkins, steak sauce salad dressing. Is there salt in the shaker? Each item crossed off the mental list. She removes the rice from the microwave and stirs it. Yes, it has been adequately cooked. The salads, prepared first and chilled, are taken from refrigerator to table. And my blue striped shirt has a stain. Meat, darkened and made safe by the heat, is cut into three portions in the pan. She slips pieces gently onto each plate, allotting onions and peppers to each. The long butcher knife, its steel blade daubed in grease and bits of meat, is left in the pan on the stove. Rice is scooped onto the plates before she places them on the table. Then her son and husband sit at the table and begin to eat. Before she sits, the pan, bowl, knife, and spatula are cleaned. And I'll be back at 8.15. Can you meet me at the airport? They do not say grace. There are enough blessings in this house, she thinks. Enough to last a lifetime.